Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm your host and moderator, Anthony Strain. Today, I'm joined by... Art Black. Dylan Captain-Villain. Matthew DeGaulle. And we are Crowdsource Politics. Today's episode will be discussing UBI, or Universal Basic Income. What it is, a brief history of it, philosophical differences, and why it's important today. Get your bag, fam. Without further ado, let's start the show. So, Art, I, I think you're probably the most knowledgeable of on UBI between all of us here as far as the history is concerned. So do you have any objections with giving like a slight brief rundown of kind of how the idea basically came into an existence? Okay. Well, in the modern context, what we're talking about with a UBI is basically an amortized monthly payment of a set amount that would be not dependent on any external factor or qualification. So as opposed to say a welfare or other payment, this would simply be a set amount monthly that would be given to any eligible citizen in perpetuity. So there wouldn't be any kind of restriction uh, you know, per se, other than you, know, you being a qualified citizen of you know, whatever given country and would receive X amount of money, it would be something that would be dependable and not something that could be you know, taken away in most situations. And that's kind of the basic idea of a UBI is that it would be universal. It would be basic. It wouldn't be something that would be, allow you to survive or not work, but it would be uh, supplemental, uh, you know, capitalism that doesn't start at zero. Interesting. So would you say that it has a long history as being an idea, or would you say this is kind of like modern or like what time that the general concept came into being? I mean, there's variations of it. Uh, I mean, the general idea that, you know, you have kind of public resources that should be distributed um, I mean, it dates back to the 15th century. There are, you know, more and more modern interpretations of it that, you know, from like the, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century, that you know start to kind of come in parallel to ideas that we would equate to more modern terms like you know like marxism socialism capitalism you know like those ideas but you know in, in any uh, or even kind of georgist ideas as far as having value from the land but you have this idea that there is kind of collective wealth in any given society that's not necessarily derived from the wealthy i mean you have wealthy that control it and in theory they are helping facilitate the creation of more wealth but ultimately, you know, you still have the masses of people in any given society that are actually contributing to the wealth, but not really enjoying the benefits of it. Some people will call this wealth redistribution. It probably is wealth redistribution, but it's probably a way of looking at uh, mitigating wealth inequality or kind of structural imbalance by simply taking the money that society has collectively gathered and passing it back out to people who either need it or who would simply spend it, or, or who was simply entitled to it. So in the vast majority of cases, most societies are not structured in a way to equally dole out the money that a society has gathered. That's just kind of a structural issue with any given you know, organization. It tends to collect at the top. In some societies, it's worse than others. And in ours in particular, the way that our technological organization and our, our culture is heading, it's increasingly becoming more and more unequal and society is not sharing in it equally. This would be a way to kind of help mitigate those inequalities by just basically redistributing it. And so would this be tied into a public theory of wealth more than private wealth? Or do you think that it's a combination of public and private wealth? 
like as far as historic concerns? Now, historically, you know, before you really get into the 20th century, they're looking at more of a, uh, I mean, Thomas Paine was for a version of this, you know, back to the founding of the country. People have looked at this uh, in the uh, 19th century as far as, you know, much as we discussed, looking at the the various resources that a society has and thinking of the contribution that everybody makes into it. You know, capitalism tends to reward things within the market. So it's all very market centric. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's allowed for a huge amount of innovation and efficiency. You know, capitalism, as long as it's regulated, can be extremely efficient. And in certain regards, you know, it's been the engine that's really pulled humanity out of where we came from, from a very, you know, poor and technologically undeveloped way, place. UBI is kind of a, a way of looking at it and saying, we have all of these resources and we have all these people that do work that isn't necessarily rewarded by the market. You know, for instance, being a, a mother, being staying at home, raising a family, it's extremely important to society. But as far as the market, the market doesn't really reward that. So while society needs that, it's not rewarded. So a UBI might be a way of looking at the various contributions that people make that actually enable a country to be great, but it kind of rewards people without really looking at their market value per se. It, it rewards them for their general contributions to society, even though that society itself is kind of a nebulous and hard to define term, as opposed to the market, which is very starkly defined. That's a succinct, as we can expect a wrap up of the historical implications of universal basic income that I think that we can expect. Mateo or, or Dylan, do you, either of you have any, any additional thoughts to contribute to, to this portion of the topic as far as the history of universal basic income is concerned? As far as the history, no, that was pretty spot on. That was good. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was about as thorough of a rundown as we're going to get. I, I'd just like to mention that the history of UBI is in a completely different context than it would be today. I mean, modern financial systems are obviously nothing like they were in the 18th and 19th centuries. So regarding the the history of it, it, it's almost a completely different beast than than what Thomas Paine was arguing for, you know, back then. That's very much true. I think Thomas Paine actually envisioned it uh, coming through in the, the form of, of land grants, if I'm not mistaken. Is that part of it? Do you remember, Art, off the top of your head? Uh, yes. Yeah. So what Thomas Paine said was out of a collected fund from landowners, there should be paid to every person when arrived at the age of 21 years the sum of 15 pounds sterling as a compensation in part for the loss of his or her natural inheritance to every person rich or poor. So this so it was it was more Roussonian than Lockean for Thomas Paine since every since Rousseau was very much part of pub lands are owned in common. And that it was basically somebody who said, hey, this is mine. And everybody's like, oh, sure. And that was taken <laughs> away No, from you're exactly right. And it, it, it's the idea of a public inheritance rather than a private inheritance. And in America, we don't question the idea of a private inheritance. We've long had you know, what they call the death tax, an estate tax. But beyond that, once you pay your tax, it's assumed that beyond that, you get your, your inheritance as a private citizen from private funds. But this is looking at it as far as America being a collective of efforts of the past where our ancestors or people from before did huge labor to get us to where we are today. And from that, there should be a dividend. Is it kind of like the idea of you didn't build that? like, Or is that taking it too much into the modern context? Well, that's an interesting way to put it. And it's probably in the spirit that Obama meant it. it and that was taken out of context. But I think that in context, 
what he means is that a lot of different factors went into play before you were ever in the position to make something happen. And while what you did is valuable and important, it rests on the shoulders of the works of others. Interesting. Uh, Dylan, do you have something that you wanted to add to this? I think that really gets at the heart of how people view a UBI, uh, even today. Uh, even though, like I did say, it was in a completely different context, but I think people still have the same kind of motivation and justifications for it, which is that it's all based on a sense of, well, a lot of it for most people, it's based on a sense of justice, right? It is essentially redistribution from the rich to the poor. That's, a, that's how most people think of it. Uh, I don't agree with that assessment. I think of it uh, more in terms of an economic tool, a financial tool. And I think that uh, the main proponents today of the policy, the main academic proponents of it, kind of view it in a utilitarian sense. Uh, a lot of economists are utilitarian now. From a utilitarian standpoint, though, wouldn't a negative income tax be preferable? That's <laughs> that's that's a big question. But let me put it like this: like you run up trillions of dollars in opportunity costs, giving people the amount it costs to raise poor people out of poverty, and you're giving that to literally mm -hmm. every single person. I feel like a negative income tax would just kind of target the people who need it and who actually yeah so um i'm i would argue that today we already have somewhat of a negative income tax you know generally our current system actually does a pretty good right. job at taking care of poor yeah, people it, it, it takes the form of the eitc mostly today that's that would be the biggest part what's uh, uh the lift act uh, kamala kamala harris's proposal would be the closest to a negative income tax and uh, do you want to explain the, the what specifically the definition of a negative income tax is? It's basically an income tax. It's like uh, the progressive tax that we have now, except instead of going down to zero, you go through the zero lower bound. You go negative, which means you receive payments at certain levels of income. Let's say there's like a, a threshold at equilibrium. You're going to get taxed zero dollars. You go above that, you're going to pay taxes. You go below that, you're going to get money sent back to you. And it's going to guarantee you a level of basic income. While the negative income tax is kind of a way to guarantee a basic income level, it shouldn't be completely confused with the earned income tax credit because the earned income tax credit is more geared towards helping people Families. with children. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't conflate the two. I, I think a negative income tax is, I mean, I don't even really support a negative income tax even. I think the system we have now is fine. I don't think there's even a problem to be solved, especially not with UBI. So I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the assertion that our tax structure is necessarily optimized right now, as opposed to the most efficient of what it could be. There are definitely improvements that could be made. You know, from a historical standpoint, it would be kind of unusual to say that at this point in history, our financial system is as good, our, our tax structure is as good as it could possibly be. That's almost never going to be the the case. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not saying it's not optimized. I'm saying it's better than UBI. Like UBI is okay. literally racking up opportunity costs, which comes down to almost morality now. We don't even have to talk about the economics of it. Just giving rich people money, no questions asked, when we could actually be giving it to the people who need it, or even just another program, anything like fireworks displays would be a literally more utilitarian use of that money. Just random fireworks <laughs> explosions. Okay, so let's uh, let's let's go back to kind of the philosophical aspect of this at looking at it from a utilitarian perspective to to explain that to people who may not be entirely familiar with how utilitarianism plays into economics. Instead of viewing this as redistributing money, wealth from the rich to the poor, it could be viewed as a method, a tool that could be used to move money from high utility areas or excuse me, from low utility areas to high utility areas. So that would be, you know, for example, moving money that is being used for luxury items and 
and move that to areas of the economy that are producing items that are more in need by people. Uh, so that would be lowering food costs or lowering fuel costs, something like that, or just giving people income in from, for which to pay for those things. You know, this is the the analytical, the technical aspect of things like welfare and food stamps and things like that. So, Mateo, what you're arguing uh, is that giving a UBI, because it's not progressive, because someone who makes $250,000 a year would be getting the same UBI as someone who makes $10,000 a year, that it is there's wasted opportunity there, that we could spend that $10,000 going to someone who makes $250,000 a year on better programs on, on areas that are higher utility uh, than what that money would be yeah. spent on with a UBI. Yeah, words can't express how much money is going towards literally nothing that's going to benefit any of us. Like we're talking about a large enough benefit to raise everyone out of poverty who's in poverty times the population of all adults in the US. It's like that's trillions of dollars in opportunity cost. I don't think we've ever had that problem to tackle ever. Trillions? would, would Trillions. Sure, why not? How, how many people are actually poor and need it versus how many people don't need it and they're going to get it anyway? It's more more well, people are yeah, not I poor think, than poor. So I think you have to define. I think you have to define need, and I wouldn't define need uh, in a qualitative sense. I would define it in a quantitative sense. Anyone who's getting below whatever you call basic income, who needs to be brought up to basic income, unless you're talking about like sixty thousand dollars a year, it's going to be a lot less people that need that or that that will come up to that basic level with help. Some most people are already there. Families as well. See, I don't. I, I don't know where you got that that why you're drawing that line there because this is supposed to be about poverty right no <laughs> no so then what is yeah. this is there a problem this is where the philosophical discussion takes a turn between people that are more conservative minded and more liberal minded or anarchic i wouldn't even call myself conservative on this i'm asking well, no, I'm saying, I, no, I know. That's why that's why I'm saying like I, I'm not trying to say that you are conservative on this. I'm saying that that's the divide. So there are people on the left who see universal basic income as a way to free people from the drudgery of work. They want to see work to be actually something that is voluntary. As long as people have to work in order to survive, it is not a voluntary act action. Wouldn't a negative income tax achieve that? A negative income tax is generally tied to employment. Yeah, but everyone's going to have that basic level of income, privately employed or not. Otherwise, it's not a negative income. It's generally tied to employment, though, and that would be the, the sticking point. For, for those yeah, people. Yeah, because people who don't need it, why would you give it to them? People making no, 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 above whatever what, basic what level. Means, what, what, what he means is that people who aren't working wouldn't necessarily be eligible for that for that tax credit. Correct. That's that's what Wait, I'm saying. Why, why wouldn't because they be eligible working. for it? You don't, that's not a condition. Maybe for one person's, that might be a person's specific plan, but I'm talking about a general net income tax. It's, I'm talking about a basic income achieved through that. It's going to be for anybody who's not making whatever we define basic income is. So there are two big differences between what you're proposing, the negative income tax uh, and a UBI. The first is that a negative I'm income tax- I'm proposing, I'm just saying it's- oh, oh, Sorry, what you're, what you're asking about, okay. The first is that a negative income tax is progressive, uh, which, so the more you make, the less you receive uh, as a benefit. And two is that uh, because it's a tax credit, it is, you receive it at essentially at the end of the year. 
Uh, it's not something that's reliable that you would get, you know, let's say at the beginning of every month that you can expect. And I think expectations are an important part of uh, people's spending habits for sure. Easy, make it every month then. Problem solved. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a problem that can be solved. I think uh, Milton Friedman actually had it where he was based on the person's prior income tax before the program took effect. So do you, when you filed for taxes, I'm not. I don't think I'm being unreasonable here. No, you're not. I'm. No, I don't think you are either. I'm talking about people who aren't rich are just not getting the free money. And people who aren't well yeah, off yeah, enough, yeah. if anything, yeah, we could, we don't have to not spend that money. I'm not saying we have to keep it at the treasury or never print it into existence. We could spend it on anything else. And like, I, I wasn't even joking about the fireworks. It is funny because of how true it is. There is more utility to blowing things up in the sky than it is just to give it to Buffett. As far as opportunity cost, from a command economy standpoint, where you have this higher echelon that looks down and says, you should be spending your money on this, or you should not spend it on that. That makes sense. But when you get down to the mechanics of people who are living their lives and just spending money, it doesn't matter what they're spending money on. If you have people who are living out in Idaho, Nebraska, wherever, and you have these communities that are getting money, if you're out and you're buying cupcakes, it might not be the best use of your money, but you might be contributing to some local bakery. And that small business is going to be able to hire people. They're going to be able to bring in not only more employment, but more income, generate more tax revenue. You're trying to micromanage people's spending. And yeah, I mean, we could have fireworks displays. That'd be cool. We could have Dear Leader who thinks that it will raise morale by having fireworks. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what people spend money on as long as they're out generating velocity of money, whereas they're putting money back into the economy where local businesses can take that money, hire people, pay taxes, and keep everything going at a kind of a dynamic and local level. I think that from a certain point, thinking of things as an opportunity cost kind of misses the point of people living their lives and getting the enjoyment they want out of it with the money that, you know, in theory should be their money or, you know, what we should deem as their money as far as a dividend, you know, something that society pays to them. Yeah, but we're not owners of a company, so that dividend, it wouldn't even work like that. But I want to just say one thing. I never said to micromanage it. I was just bringing up the fireworks display to talk about how the relative utility of giving it to rich people, less rich people, moderately rich people, middle-class people who are well off and so on and so on versus just giving the people who actually really make below what we define basic income levels. But everything is achieved by negative income tax. What you saw, said, you know, freedom, being able to move around. Cause once you lose your job, you're going to get payments, whether you make it monthly or only one time a year, which is not a good idea. But that's all achieved for the people who can't do it on their own. So I don't see why it has to go to rich people as well. Mateo, my my uh, my response to that would be: so first of all, Art, I do think that you need to take opportunity cost into consideration because that's obviously going to be a factor in marginal benefit of taking any action. The opportunity cost shouldn't be measured in absolute dollars. Giving ten thousand dollars to every person who's making you know under under thirty thousand that would have a much larger impact on the economy than giving $10,000 to someone who's making 250,000 or more. Absolutely. That will give you right. money velocity, giving it to those people. Like it just any almost anything else you do with that money is better than giving it to people above a certain income threshold. Uh so but what I would also argue is that uh, that $10,000 you're giving someone who makes 250,000 or more isn't necessarily going to prevent you from spending 
$10,000, you know, somewhere else where that is high utility. It's not, it's, it's not quite as simple as that because we're not measuring those, oppor- those opportunity costs in pure dollar amounts. We're measuring them and how they infect, affect quality of life metrics. So that would be things like inflation, consumptions, savings ratio, or, you know, productivity, employment, growth, long-term, long-term, and sh- long-term and short-term growth. Sure. You're not saying things that are untrue. I just, what, what are you addressing? What I'm saying is that while you see giving $10,000 to someone who makes $250,000 in a year as losing two hundred as losing $10,000 in opportunity costs, that's I wouldn't say that's the case. I would say that's it doesn't have a significant effect on inflation or anything like that. So I wouldn't necessarily say that has a negative opportunity cost. That's I, I don't know why you'd come to that conclusion. It's absolutely that. That's money that can be spent on poor people that need the money being given to rich people. It's as opportunity caustic as you get. So as far as like being a like a one percenter, like if you're talking about making more than $300,000 a year, you're literally talking about 1% of the population. I'm talking about anyone above whatever line we draw basic income at. Anyone above that, every single person above that line. Okay, but that's immaterial. And the reason I say that is because you're talking about a very, very, very small percentage of the population. Most people make under $100,000 a year. A very small percentage of Americans make over $300,000 a year. And literally, when you say one percenter, you're talking about people that make more than $300,000 a year. When you're talking about an optimal or an optional system where people could opt into it, is Bill Gates going to spend the time to opt into a freedom dividend? Probably not. You know, you have a lot of people who theoretically don't need the money and could get it. But the advantage of giving it to everyone like they do in Alaska, where if you live in Alaska, you get part of that oil dividend, no matter what, is that there's no stigma. So right now, for Americans, if you're taking welfare, you're thought of as a dirtbag. You're a leech. You're not giving into society. You're a taker. You're a moocher. You're a leech. However you want to say it, the benefit of having a universal system that, yes, in theory, some rich people don't need, is that it is universal. It is for everyone. And While you'll have some rich people that might take money they don't need, you're talking about a very, very small number of people taking a very, very small amount of money compared to what they're paying into it. It's really not a big deal. Like 13.5% of the population are impoverished. I'm talking about the other like 87% of people. Okay. The number I'm talking about is closer to 87% of the population. I'm not talking about just the 1%. That makes no sense. Okay. So first of all, in, you know, an extra however many thousand dollars of in a year is still going to benefit people who aren't impoverished. Sure, it's not going to not benefit them. Second, this is an important part, uh, which is that the vast majority of the population still thinks of all of these things in terms of justice and not necessarily as economic policy. And in that sense, there is a psychological cost to not making this for everyone, to to adding some sort of qualifier to who gets it and who doesn't. And and that that is something that you have to consider. And I would say that the psychological cost of restricting it from higher income people would be greater than whatever benefit there is from saving that little bit of money at the top. That makes absolutely yeah, I, no sense because I, I think it does though. No, it, we're talking about a massive bill versus a fraction of that. And you're like everyone's gonna be upset with that because we're not giving it to the rich people as well. Okay, so I think we're talking about different things. I think we're talking about, I think you're talking about like 85% of the population, whereas I'm talking about like the top 10%. I'm talking about solving a population. You're talking about appeasing 
other people like i don't even know what the problem would arise people just would do what they would complain about it or they wouldn't take the money it's the same problem that you have currently with welfare whereas people how much of a problem is that though yes there is no material no no it's a problem sure i wouldn't call that a huge problem by any measure the, the problem that you have here with it's the same problem that you have with welfare where people want to see welfare eliminated because they believe people are getting something for nothing and it's not benefiting them directly. And that is a huge problem that compounds on every other problem that we have in society. It's, it's something that it happens. It's every, true. Hold on. Let, let me, let me finish. If you give it to everybody and then tax it out of the economy, which is what we would probably be doing then you do not have that stigma because everybody is getting that one grand or whatever the amount is a month. And they're like, well, I get it. Everybody else gets it. So I'm not going to complain about it. I understand. It's the difference between uh, social security and something like welfare because it's not means tested, but the negative income tax doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to go apply for it. It could come automatically to you. Everything that UBI does, this could do minus giving it to people that just makes no sense to give it to. But giving it to everybody solves that psychological problem. And that sociological problem that we, the Dillard and I, are talking about. It solves a psychological problem by just giving it to people, no questions asked. Like you don't have, they don't have to sign up for it. The, the problem arises when they have to sign up for it and go to offices, not because they're just getting it. If it shows up in their mail, they're not going to be like, oh, not me. They're going to spend it. We all agree that having to sign up for welfare has a psychological deterrent to it. Let me give an example. Uh, let's let's talk about you know homeless people and how they take advantage of. Uh, services and benefits that are offered to them. Only about half of all homeless people go to shelters. A lot of them live in camps. Uh, a lot of them don't take advantage of these services and benefits that are offered to them. And when you ask them why, the overwhelming response is that they want to do it for themselves. It's a matter of pride. And that prevents about half of the population who are eligible for those services from getting those services. And that's, that's hugely significant. So when you're when you're talking about applying this to the entire population, that's it's a huge cost. It really is a huge cost. That's psychological. But that's not the only problem that we're talking about. UBI solves the other problem by having it being universal, which is people thinking that they are getting screwed because they're not getting it as well. It is the issue. Yeah. Even even if those people aren't the recipients. That's the point. They so don't matter. The, they're not the recipients. They do, they're they not do matter because it makes it to where it's like you said, you you understand it with social security. It makes it to where people feel like they are, they get it too. So they'll fight to keep it. Yes. There's a psychological factor there, but all I'm saying is the people not getting it can moan about it all they want. I don't get it. it and that is about a hypothetical, huge problem. <laughs> depending on who's actually moaning about it, which most people don't actually, most people don't cry about welfare. Those are like yes, they do. a specific type of mentality, mostly conservative. They really do. Uh, Art, I think, has a great point to make about this. Art, go ahead, please. Really quick. Alaska's dividend is universal, and that's what really makes it work. They've had it for over 30 years. They all get it. There's no means testing. It just shows up. It's just, well, if you're Alaskan, you get the money. Do people get the money who don't need it? Sure. But it's not controversial at all, even in a very deep red state, because it's universal. The problem with welfare is that even though it goes to people who need it, that triggers that Calvinistic, old school kind of wasp mentality of if you're not working, you're lazy, you're worthless, whatever. Whereas a universal dividend kind of 
short circuits that. It goes past it and then it lets people think, oh, well, everybody gets that. It's just one of those things. It's like a private freeway where everyone can drive on the freeway. What percentage of people who could be getting their welfare don't because of this uh, problem you guys are talking about? Do you guys have any numbers? I'm, I I don't know how to answer that particular Well, you said it's a problem. Question. So is it above like 15, above 25? I say it's a, so, I'm not saying so the people that- I can tell you, I can, I can tell you- There's a guesstimate that we can get, right? I can tell you, I can tell you that when we're talking about, uh, so I can't give you an estimate for welfare in general, but I can tell you that uh, about half of the homeless population does not take advantage of those benefits. Shelters, right? Because I'm talking about not something that's going to show up. Shelters, every, any service, yeah. any service. Where they have to show up to a line, they have to sign up for something. I'm no, talking no, no, about we're just not like just, UBI. No, we're not just, no, hey, listen, we're not just talking about that. We're also talking about things like food stamps, which is done entirely through the mail. You don't have to show up to anything. Um, it's. But you have to sign up for those. You have to apply. Yeah, you do it. You have to apply. I'm not talking about applications. You're the application process is where the bottleneck happens. You guys are so, acting okay, like I'm proposing you're, application you're, processes. You're, no, you're no, 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 no. There's two. Let me let me break in because this is a moderation issue, and so it needs to be clarified. There are two issues. There's the stigma of having to sign up for welfare, which is what I believe Mateo is talking about and Dylan is trying to address. And then there's the stigma of the Calvinistic social sociological underpinnings of American culture, which is what. Art and I are talking about, which is the fact that people think those who would get something for nothing are lazy pieces of shit. These are two separate issues. With what the universal basic income does solves is the one that Art and I is talking about. Negative income tax or basic income guarantee, whatever you want to call it, solves the issue that you and Dylan are talking we about. We talked about Social Security, right? And how that doesn't actually cause those problems. It really does, actually. It's a very popular Republican talking point to dwindle down uh all these programs social security the they're always talking about getting rid of it and now all of a sudden we're trying to paint it as this wonderful everybody loves it policy people call it welfare people say right. all these things about even a non-means tested system so i just don't right. see this happening in the real world but the problem is is that the voters feel as though or i'm sorry the general population feels as though that that is an earned benefit so the sure, ideological the people, I'm not talking about the ideological there. people. The ideological people are probably like less than one-tenth of the population. I'm talking, I'm talking about, about the, the same. person. I am talking, but I'm talking about the Tea Party people, not the Tea Party people, I'm, uh, the MAGA people that are like, welfare is a drain on society. If they want to they want to get this, they should have to work for it just and like what I you do. say is true, they shouldn't think that way, right? They when will it comes to Social think Security. that way. They don't think that way when it comes to Social Security. That's the point. They don't. The MAGA I people. I could find no. Republican articles right now talking about you're, how Social you're talking Security about, is a brain on society. Talking, yes, but those are the ideological driven people. The people that the people that supported the Tea Party and were they're mainstream like, politicians. Hands, I'm talking about the mainstream. But the people we're talking about the general population as a whole. So those you're talking people, abstractly, and I'm using real world examples. No, I'm not talking abstractly. Just let me let me finish my point. The people that said, keep your government hands off my Medicare and Social Security, those are the people that Art and I are talking about. You're talking about the ideological driven people that managed nope. to get voted in. Do you believe that we we addressed your point, Mateo? If not, please. No. Please, okay, so please. You told me what I was point. saying, and it was completely wrong. I'm saying the problems that you say will exist already do exist with something that's not means tested. Like you say, if it's like Social Security, 
people won't complain about it like that. And then I say they do, and you say that's only ideological people. You marginalize them, but it's not. It's mainstream politics for a reason. These are representatives of large swaths of Americans. They, the people, those people that you're discussing, there, I do not believe that their voters actually want them to get rid of Social Security or Medicare. I believe that the people that you are talking about are are very low amount of people. Their voters would have their heads if they tried to get rid of those programs. If they actually and, tried to get rid of okay, them. Okay, perfect. Let me go with that. Let's go with that. I want to go with that low amount of people, though. It's a low amount of people now with Social Security, and it will be a low amount of people with a debt income tax as well, probably. Why would it be so different with that than it is anything else, especially if this is non-means tested? It's just in your mailbox. Boom. Once you go below a certain income level. Well, I guess it is means tested, but you don't have to sign up. Not means tested, but there's no sign up process because that's the bottleneck it happens at signups. These people feel bad talking about their income, sending their information out, thinking maybe someone in their town who works at the office might see it. This is all automated. It's all algorithms now. Just like right. UBI, it won't. That problem is solved. I'm saying, and I th I think that's with, a se I, I just think that's a separate problem. That's all I'm saying. I think there's two problems. There's that one and the UBI, other one. What's the other problem again that UBI the, addresses? The the UBI having it universal makes it to where people who don't get it won't bitch about it. Yeah, but we already see that with Social Security, so that's wrong. But uh, what was it's, the other point? It's that was though the other point is the the people um, feeling ashamed having to sign up for it. Yeah, we could take care of that too. But see, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think issue. your point. I, I don't. I think that you're under. You are overestimating the amount of people that bitch about Social Security. That's it. Um, well, either way, Social Security is going nowhere. Just like a negative income tax would be going nowhere. Like the people I, I disagree. <laughs> Well, yeah, true. I mean, it's never say never, but uh, I was saying I, I meant I disagree with the the fact that if you made it, if there was a negative income tax, I think more people would be trying to get rid of it than they are trying to get rid of Social Security. I don't know. This is, Look, this just is looking at the price tag, man. We're, we're talking about trillions of dollars in differences. 13.5% of the population really needs to have their income brought up to a good level of income. You're talking about adding that 87% extra and everyone's going to be like, hell yeah, that's the better option. Nobody's going to go for that if they see those numbers. And guaranteed, some news know. pundit is going to put those numbers up. And it's it's going to be so intuitive for anyone who sees it. So, uh, again, when, when you say trillions of dollars, um, I think that... $1,000 a month for every adult, which is a low UBI, yeah. I add, is uh, $2.5 or something every year. So 13.5% yeah. of that is the people who actually need it. So, yes, literally trillions in opportunity costs. Well, see, see that's, that's, that's the part that we should probably talk about more okay uh, which is that you're saying that only 13.5% of the population needs we it can bump and up to 25 in that, in that just case, for argument's sake we uh, can let, make let, it me, let me finish let me finish please stop interrupting for a little bit um so 13.5% is the is the percent of the population that's below the poverty line we're not just talking about benefiting people who are below the poverty line you know you're you're talking about an ex very extreme progressive uh, implementation of this, whereas you know I'm I'm talking about ten thousand dollars or twelve thousand you know ten thousand to twelve thousand a year for for someone who's making sixty thousand a year they're not below that thirteen point five percent line but it would still benefit them sure of course say, it would but we right, also spend that money on something that, better let, let, let me finish if you want to say that that you know that money could be better spent elsewhere. It's our, you know, we're already spending that twelve thousand on people who are making less. Um, so where would that twelve thousand be spent 
uh, else, you know, if not spent on them. And uh, again, it's it, it shouldn't be measured people. necessarily in dollar amount, but in other economic uh, quality of life metrics. The poorer people would be the ones who get it. The people who still relatively make less, like there's just, you could even spend on that. You could spend it on food programs. You could spend it on schools. Like everything else is a good idea compared to just every single person getting that money. Even if 50% of the population needs UBI to get them up to a certain level, it's still, we're talking about trillions in opportunity costs. And there are other ways to measure opportunity costs. I'm not saying that's absolute. I'm just saying dollars to donuts, that's what we have so far. I would completely agree with the assertion that we should be spending that money on wherever the highest utility area is. And if that's not someone who's making 250000 a year, then it's not someone who's making 250000 a year. But I also don't think that that's necessarily a straight up opportunity. I don't think spending, you know, applying that evenly for everyone is going to cost, you know, I, I don't think taking that oh, 10,000 away. I, I don't think that opportunity that cost. I see what you're saying. Sure. No, it wouldn't be the gross number I give out. I get you. But yeah, it would I don't still think be taking that 10,000. Yeah, I don't think taking that 10,000 away from someone who's making 250,000 a year is going to allow you to spend 10,000 or whatever exactly uh, on something else like schools, right? I think schools are obviously, uh, you know, spending on programs like that are obviously oh, bridges. Important. I mean, just yeah. the list is so long. Why give it to so many people who just really by any moral standard shouldn't be getting it? Like I don't even have to talk about economics. Again, it's who's going to be like hell agree with that i think another thing that needs to be said is that a ubi or a negative income tax does not repeal progressive income taxation so that if you're concerned about the opportunity cost that you one thousand dollars they get a month that they don't need from the rich people will just be sucked right back out at the end of the year net income tax is more of an extension of a progressive taxation it's like if you look at a number line how you can go less than zero it's basically just doing that with taxes uh art you have a point that you wanted to make do. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and who are not fed, who are cold and who are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Dwight Eisenhower. So it's understood that there is opportunity cost in everything but we're talking about a very very small amount as far as paying billionaires a twelve hundred dollar a month ubi versus getting to that ubi in the first place which puts twelve thousand dollars in the hands of everybody who needs it so yes i mean in theory we're talking about some amount of money that's going to people that don't need it where it's wasted but in the grander systemic side of things you're talking about putting a huge amount of money, not just in every individual hand, but every family's hand. So if you have a couple, it's not 12,000, it's 24,000. Might be 36,000 if there's an older child who lives at home. Communities that are away from San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles that don't have jobs suddenly have income. They have money coming in that suddenly can spend money where these 13%, that people who are in poverty, suddenly the local bike rental shop or the cupcake shop or whatever they need to hire people and it lifts people out of poverty because these poor communities have more money to spend and these people who are on the margins are lifted up so 
I, while I understand and I get the idea that if we had perfect information and perfect intelligence and could spend money perfectly, it would be great. But in the real world, we really can't do that. And we can't really limit ourselves to not spending money. When we think about the ridiculous amounts of money that have already been wasted, we can't paralyze ourselves trying to find perfect solutions to problems that would be solved with good enough solutions. I think that argument there, you supported uh, UBI pretty well, but that same exact argument supports net income tax. The only difference is the people, because uh, you know the study we're talking about, or I was talking about earlier, um, above a certain income level, people don't really spend it. They just kind of put it away. They hoard it or something. That's exactly what's going to happen above, I think it's like 67000 75000 a year. And that's what we're going to see. Like it doesn't change all of a sudden because everyone's getting UBI. People spend on what they spend and the market will pull it out if it pulls it out, but they're making too much money where they don't need it. No, I, I completely understand your point, Mateo. I, it, it is one of the biggest splits between a negative income tax and a UBI support. It is why you have people like Charles Murray of the libertarian ilk and people like Milton Friedman that prefer a negative income tax. But, it, but on the other side, the reason that people like art support a, a universal basic income is because it addresses the need to have perfect information and it addresses the fact that people will be against it if they themselves are not benefiting. We don't it. need perfect information. That is the biggest difference between those two. And I think we... we ran about this for a long time. I want to bring in Sean Dixon. He's one of our longtime members of Crowdsource Politics, the debate group. Sean, are you there right now? I am. So uh, you're our first guest on the show. This is something that we want to do on a fairly regular basis. How do you think our discussion has gone thus far? Very good. Very thorough. Uh, maybe uh, a little bit above my intelligence level here and there, but I'm trying to keep up. I don't knock you, man. You're you're a very smart guy, but I, I'll take that as a compliment. This is the kind of thing that we're going for. What was one of the key takeaways from the first half of our discussion? Uh, definitely, uh, Matteo's point is you guys have been focused on for a while now. It's uh, definitely something I didn't really consider, you know, as far as people that don't necessarily need it getting it. I'm sitting here thinking about it more and more. And I'm thinking, you know, the people... I think what you're saying, Matteo, is people in the middle class and upper would, you know, they don't really need it, so they shouldn't get it. Is that, is that right? I wouldn't even say middle class or above. I would say the whole idea of any kind of basic income, be it universal or negative income, is to get the people who need it to survive up to that basic level of income. Once you get to that threshold, that by policy, by every means you're putting into this, they, they've reached it. It's good. There's either more reason to give them more and bring them up further or give it to someone else. Or like I said, you could put it into schools, anything else. Bridges. We need bridges very bad. Infrastructure projects would be a wonderful place to put that money because that's actually productive capacity instead of just having people go fill already utilized capacity and maybe even causing inflation. Sean, does that, the, is that how you're, you took this away? Is that, that what you were getting at? Yeah, that's pretty much kind of how I got it. So that got me thinking and it's, Yes, yeah, so, you know, poor people, there are certain people and certain things that do need more funding and more money as they need in order to survive and, you know, just live a normal life. But at the same time, I like these sort of the random unknown aspects, like all the middle class and even the richer people. There's no telling what they can do with that extra thousand. Like someone like me that makes maybe, what, 40000 a year, maybe 50 if I'm lucky. 
that extra 12,000, I could end up creating a business that within five years could be worth millions. And I, maybe I hired a hundred people within that five, 10 year time frame after I created it. You just, you just don't know where it's going to go, what that thousand can create and become. But I like the idea of everyone getting it because even if they make sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year where they're happy and they got everything they need, maybe that extra bit can do something or value elsewhere. And it it would actually be a good idea to give people below the thresholds I'm talking about money at certain points in time. Like during a downturn where you do want to kind of create some sort of inflation, that would be great. You give it to them, it's a it's kind of a form of what economists call helicopter money. You're just like directly putting that into the economy and it's going like it's going to create money velocity quick because it's just literally changing hands to registers. But you don't want that all the time because that's a perfect tool to fight deflation. Dylan, I think you you had something that you wanted to add to Sean's point. Uh, yeah. So I think Sean brought up a very good point, uh, which is one that sh- I we should have brought up earlier, which is that because we're talking about at least Mateo and I are talking about this in terms of utility and adding utility, giving $10,000 to someone who's making 60000 a year isn't necessarily going to add less utility than giving that $10,000 to someone who's making 20000 a year. Um, because we're, we're not just talking about short-term needs, right? Uh, I think, and this is something that Art, Art mentioned on, in our group a while ago. Uh, which is hierarchy of needs, even though it isn't necessarily going term immediate needs in the long term, you know, we're talking about long term growth here. So what Sean is saying is that someone who's making 60,000 a year might be able to contribute to a new business. They're much more likely to contribute to something that constitute long term growth rather than uh, short term immediate needs. Sean, I, I want to thank you for joining us. You're now free to jump into the rest of the conversation. And I want to talk about why this is important now. Why is everybody talking about UBI now? Is it just because of the Yang Gang? Or is there something fundamentally happening within our culture and society that makes this an attractive idea? Uh, Dylan, I think that you were trying to break in while I was talking. So go ahead and you go first. Okay, yeah, yeah. Andrew Yang didn't start talking about this out of the blue. There is kind of a a progression of things that are becoming politically acceptable. And I think we've kind of passed the point where universal healthcare, single payer healthcare is kind of the that's the next big progressive step, I would say. I don't I hate calling it progressive because it's not necessarily a progressive policy in the philosophical sense. But from there we can move on to other policies that are more politically palatable now than they were 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you know, a UBI would have been a joke that no one would have been talking about it seriously. And now it's still kind of a fringe policy. But we can we can kind of see what's coming down the road. You know, in, in 10 years, we're talking about a UBI now, like we talked about single payer healthcare 10, 15 years ago. So it's coming. That I'd like to say is a very good point. Art, do you have something that you would like to add to this? The reason we're talking about it now is, as Victor Hugo said, nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. In the mid 20th century, after World War II, there was a debate as far as should welfare go to everybody or should it go to the people who need it? You had ideas in Britain as far as min income, minimum income versus an actual, just a welfare that targeted the poor. And as it worked out, most of the Western democracies went for more of a model that tried to go 
right after the poor. They went to subsidize or otherwise give money or resources directly to the poor as opposed to everybody. And there's a certain obvious logic to it, which is you give money to the people who need it. With the UBI, I, I think we're revisiting it now for two reasons. And one is that you know we've kind of seen the limitations of that very specific model, be it by kind of that bias where people are looked down upon for accepting welfare or you know, just the general, you know, lack of, you know, it being sufficient. With UBI, the idea is a lot more comprehensive and it's not just targeting the poor, but it targets all of society. So if you think of putting money, you know, it's the actual wealth redistribution that everyone feared for all of these years at a point in time where we have enough wealth to really redistribute. And the not just direct effect, but the indirect effects is I think the thing that was always missing. And if you have money going back into these communities where you have small businesses that can afford to hire more people and do more things, and you have people that have money at their individual level, so they think, you know what, I could rob this liquor store, or maybe I don't because I'd lose my UBI while I'm in prison. You know, it changes the dynamic of lots of little, 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 little decisions here and there, and it creates better outcomes in the aggregate. And I think that that's the point that we missed originally. And while very well intentioned, we realize now that not only did that not work, but we're facing a 21st century problem of not necessarily having a economic system where labor is necessary, where human labor is being replaced by robots, by automation, or by advances in technology that kind of eliminates the need for regular human labor as we know it. So the combination of these two things, kind of the long-term failure of welfare, and then the imminent failure of labor is causing us to revisit these old ideas and realize that there might be some um, applicability, you know, for us going forward. As uh, Art was saying, it's always popped in and out throughout history, but uh, around the recession during 2008-ish, when uh, Actually, MMT itself was getting popular. I think it kind of gained traction there. And uh, having been in some a bunch of MMT groups, I could actually say that there was uh, it was something that I was familiar with long before Yang came around. I actually think Yang was maybe part of that community. Not exactly MMT, but he sounds like he's familiar. The way he talks about it, you could almost tell he's definitely educated in that area. Yeah, Yang is very technocratic when it comes to all these kind of uh, problems and solutions. I did want to make another point, though. We keep talking about like the benefits of spending money, and it would cause a lot of growth. It would absolutely cause growth, but we're not looking at the cost of it. Without a corresponding tax to eat up the inflation it would cause, we're going to have a heavy dose of inflation. This is not just a little bit of money. Like This, this makes uh, quantitative easing look like child's play because it's just literally going into the economy instead of excess reserve accounts. So we would actually have to find a way to extinguish the inflationary pressures from it, which I think would be useful during recessions, not just all the time, every time. I can agree with that. I, I think that it should be mentioned again, though, that a UBI or negative income tax, whatever, whatever ultimately, because I think we all agree that something's going to, and it's, it's inevitable. One of these versions are, is going to come, but it doesn't replace progressive Something. income taxation. So I think the the worry of not being able to pull it out of the economy is, is not one I'm I'm personally concerned with. Uh, Dylan, did you want to have something to add to this as well? Uh, yeah, so uh, Mateo is absolutely correct in that by itself, a UBI in the way it's intended to be implemented uh, by most people today 
it would be expansionary. You need to have some kind of contractionary policy to go with it in order to balance out the inflationary effects. You know, that being said, it doesn't necessarily need to be $1,000 a month, right? That's what Yang is proposing. It actually, it needs to be pretty substantial to have a positive effect. Some of the studies have shown 2.5 trillion is about the baseline because it does have to be pretty sizable to have the positive effects that the studies actually looked at. But uh, $1,000 a month, like Yang's, I think comes out to around 2.5 trillion a year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, 2.5 trillion a year, which would, uh, that would equal. And that's just free money in the economy. That's not in excess reserves or anything. That's just sloshing around. That would be like uh, what equivalent to one eighth of our entire GDP. I would like to know how much actually currency is in circulation right now. I, I would be surprised if it's even 2.5 trillion. Uh, current, like like physical currency, like cash? Yeah, like, like what we would be doing with UBI. We're going to be multiplying. Well, I wouldn't it. call it necessarily cash. I would say the ones and zeros that it represents everyone's banking transactions. Uh, so it, the answer is going to be about $20 trillion, which That's GDP. I'm talking about money in the system. GDP is just the final cost of all goods and services. Well, yeah, see, that that's that's kind of what I think. Money in the system that's sitting around doing nothing isn't money. <laughs> that's I, I, by my definition. Um, well, I'm not talking about sitting around doing nothing. We're talking about people who would be spending it, right? It's going to be going towards well, I think what, what Dylan is saying is that he, he thinks that the $20 trillion that it represents GDP is actual money in circulation, but I don't think that that's the full amount of money in circulation. No, no, no. GDP is a misleading number. Yeah, GDP is a very unimportant number a lot of the time. Oh no no no! I disagree no, no, no. entirely. It's, it's let, let me that. let me let me clear up my, my thing though is that I I wasn't saying that GDP is is useful or, or anything like that. I just don't think that that twenty trillion dollars represents the actual amount of money in circulation. That's just the end effect. I mean that's that's so just to be in a very technical sense, that's literally the amount of money that is circulated in a year. That's what the that's what GDP is. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the amount of money that people have available to them to spend in a year. You know how much money they have sitting in their bank account. When That's they calculate GDP, actually, is going to get too technical. Yeah, so so I think we're talking about what like M M two is what we want. Well, I was actually going to bring up money supply numbers later, but um, yeah. when we're talking about GDP, some things like transfers are actually counted in certain measures. So it's not necessarily like most of it. What you're saying is true. Money that is exchanged. But a lot of it is... Um, I think that we're getting a bit too into the weeds on this particular subject for what we're actually talking about. I know that it's very important, but I think Art wanted to bring it back towards the automation point. Art, am I, am I mistaken on that? If, if not, go ahead. Well, I think that we're talking about UBI now for specific reasons. And to go back to 1971, you know, a UBI plan that you know, came into effect under Nixon's White House... Uh, it was advanced by the Democrats. It's called the Family Assistant Plan, um, passed in 1970 and again in 1971. And basically, it stalled in the Democratic Senate because it wasn't high enough. You know, they were talking about $10,000 a year, you know, in inflation-adjusted dollars. It basically wasn't high enough for the Democrats, so they kicked it back. But this was a very mainstream idea some time passed, it just never quite got off the ground. And then we got distracted with other things. The reason we're revisiting it now is because we're entering a different age in our economy and in our you know, social and civic life, where we're realizing that it's not just the poor people who are being affected, but we have this massive income inequality that's only getting worse. And there's really no mechanism at all to change it. The inequality we're seeing now simply can't be fixed under our current system. There's no mechanism to fix it. Either we redistribute it or it never gets redistributed. So 
that's kind of what we're looking at now is this idea of exploring ideas to bring money into the hands of your average American that no longer can get it through wages. There's really no way to get higher wages anymore. Every company that's out there is looking for ways to slash payroll, bring in automation, bring in robots. And even if you have new jobs that are created from automation, those jobs are gonna be next on the chopping block to automate. So we're in this death spiral of wages right now. And in a certain sense, no matter what industry you're in, everyone realizes it. It's just a question of who thinks they can hold out the longest. You have some people that are gonna get wiped out sooner than others, but everybody kind of knows that the end is near within the next, let's say 20 to 30 years. So we're looking at options to mitigate what, what future everyone knows is coming. Sean, do you, are, are you still with us? Uh, I know that you're on the line, but I, I don't know if, if you're still present. I'm here. Do you have anything that you'd like to add? We want to get our guests in as much as possible. And I, I feel free to break in using our system that we have for this. Uh, but do you have anything that you want to add? I got you. I was just looking at numbers where uh, Matteo was mentioning, you know, all the money in circulation. Um, I figured I'd throw that out there since I looked it up. There's uh, currently $28 trillion sitting in stock market for uh, New York Stock Exchange and uh, NASDAQ, all that good stuff. And then you've got $1.77 trillion currently in actual physical dollars and coins. And, of course, I must add that there's $0.3 billion in value in the cryptocurrency market at the moment. <laughs> I actually... Uh... I looked up uh, the total M1 supply, which is like the money stock in you know the USA, which is basically just money outside of the banks. It's not tied up. It's not doing nothing. And uh, basically, right now, snapshot of now, we're about like 3.7 trillion. Which I mean, if we're talking about the low end, 2.5 trillion a year adding on, I mean that's that's significant. That's more than just significant. That's like Ron Paul's warning. He tells us about that. We're going to actually make him right, I think. I, I, it's funny. That much. <laughs> and then he's going to brag about it, and he's going to sell it. Well, he's going to be dead, <laughs> probably. He's pretty old, but... Oh, God. <laughs> but all I'm saying is that's a lot of free-moving money. Like, with QE, at least it was held mostly in, like, bank accounts, like uh, excess reserve accounts, where it was, like, they were getting money to not spend it, you know? Bernanke made sure they didn't put it into the economy because of that kind of inflation pressure. Yeah, you're right. No, that's that's quite a bit. I, that's a huge percentage of of what we have right now. That's 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 moving too quickly. That's not sustainable at all. That's every year. Yeah, that's every year too. And so we might we might have to have to raise taxes. But I think the first then this is partly why I'm a little bit concerned about UBI is because we we don't really have a housing shortage market right now. As far as actual physical homes that are available for people to purchase, um, but you're gonna—the first thing people are gonna do with that money is try to move into a better place. And in cities, it'll be a problem, but that's already—it just amplified a little bit. Yeah. Do you have anything that you, I mean? I know that you're you're kind of involved in in this business. Do you do you have anything that you would think that we should know or anything? Yeah, Art actually probably could comment on like uh, the stock too, like what we're dealing with right now of houses and. All that good stuff. You're talking about like housing and homelessness and all that. Well, I'm talking more along the lines of like while while we don't necessarily have a a shortage of actual supply, uh, we do have a shortage of affordability. And if and my concern with the UBI is that if if I got an extra thousand dollars a month and I was you know on the cusp of being middle class, I would 
the first thing I do is try to find a better neighborhood to move into, like one with a better school, whatever. Um, and to me, that would push those prices up, but they would also push prices up on the lower end because, well, you have slumlords. And I know that you're kind of uh, involved, not in the slumlord thing. I don't want to give people the wrong impression. <laughs> but I know that you're involved in the real estate. So Art, I know that you're a slumlord. Do you have anything that you want to add? Okay, well, let me ask you this. Why do people want to live in San Francisco? Because everyone else lives in San Francisco. Okay, but why do they want to live there? Beauty, jobs, coast. Uh, the weather. It's not the fucking weather. Have you ever been to San Francisco? Yeah, San Francisco's not that Oh, awesome. Oh, no, no, no. It's ab I mean, when I say the weather, I mean like the fact that between 50 and 80, like all year long. Uh, San Francisco is miserable. No. <laughs> <laughs> People want to live in San Francisco because that's where the jobs are. Like you have, yeah, that's like, true. When you think about these giant like population centers, like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, okay, yeah, I mean, California's got nice weather, but you know, you're talking about people who, or let's say Atlanta, let's say Seattle. People want to move to these big cities because that's where the jobs are. That's where the money is concentrating. Why are the jobs there? Well, exactly. No, and, and that's the entirely relevant question: is why are the jobs there? So if you had a UBI where, you know, people in Nebraska, people in Missouri, these little communities actually were economically viable again, like they used to be, people would just move there instead. So you wouldn't have people clamoring to get into these big cities to pay these crazy rents because they wouldn't need to, because they could go to these places that are off the beaten path that are more rural and those rural areas would be economically viable again. So all these people, these landlords who are jacking up rents in Manhattan or in the Bay Area or whatever, when you have vacancy, you can't jack rents up. So when people aren't moving there or when people are buying their own homes or whatever, it doesn't take much of a cut in the rental in industry. Once you start losing that volume, you have to lower rates because if you don't lower rates, you have vacancy and vacancy is zero. So a high rent is great when you can get it, but if you can't get it, it's worse than nothing because you've got this giant mortgage on a property that's making you no money. So what we have right now is this system. Unless you're using the equity out of it to fund other speculative assets that are actually producing money. Sure. Right. But, you know, for the, you know, let's say for your, you know, your average investor who's worth less than $10 million and you have, you know, let's say, you know, some apartment complex or duplexes or whatever, you know, you're looking at that rental income as far as, you know, that plus the appreciation and suddenly you're a millionaire. If you're not getting any rental income and you can't pay for these giant mortgages, then suddenly you've got this liability. It's not you being wealthy. Now you're under the gun. You know, that changes the whole dynamic. And I think that once you have some kind of UBI where you can afford to live in rural areas, suddenly people aren't renting in high areas, they're buying in high areas or they're buying in rural areas. And that takes the, the power away from these landlords that can gouge. And that's a very interesting point that I actually have never thought of. Like, I didn't think of the knock-on effects of UBI creating more robust economies in, in the rural areas. So it might actually lead to people moving back and trying to start businesses in their hometown. Great point. Mateo, I believe that you wanted to break in. Uh, yeah, on um, the popularity of cities, I think a lot of it has to do with the same reason why a country has a good economy. It comes down a lot to geography. And even though, yeah, the weather in a lot of these cities suck, they always have ports. There's always something drawing that money in. And with extra money, people would branch out, of course. I mean, people go through trends 
from rural to urbanization back and forth throughout history. But also, I think a lot of it has to do with what's actually available. There needs to be some sort of navigable waterways. There needs to be potable water, easy to reach. There's a lot of things that you see people gravitate to. So that area there, that's limited. And a lot of America is not even very hospitable to begin with. That alone is a constraint, which probably actually isn't that much. There's probably a lot of land. I'm probably overstating it. But another uh, constraint would be the actual housing market. Like, I agree in time, there, people would probably be able to build houses. They'd have a lot more stuff going on. But in the interim, like during those market shifts, there would be a lot of price uh, revolution and it would be to the upside because just the amount of supply is not going to go up with yeah, you know, not the right away anyways. It's not going to be new houses every time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There'll be a period. But eventually, yeah, that's what will happen. Uh, Dylan, did you have another point that you wanted to make? Uh, so I think rural economics, uh, you know, Art was talking about, you know, a UBI making rural life more viable. Uh, and I think that's true in some regards and not true in other regards. The main cost to rural living isn't necessarily like gas prices or anything like that. It's time, transportation, and not being around anything. Uh, and so even if you're making an extra 10000 that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to want to live an extra half hour away from the city that you want to be in. Generally, people want to be around cities because that's where the things are. That's where that's where their interests are. You know, that's where you can go to see shows and restaurants and all of that. You don't necessarily want to be out in the middle of a cornfield. Uh, Sean, yeah, please, please go ahead. Yeah, uh, being a guy from a small town of like population 2000, you're absolutely correct about that's exactly why I wanted to come to Atlanta. I wanted to get out of that place as soon as possible. But $1,000 a month in everybody's pocket is probably going to create more forms of entertainment. There's, there's going to be venues popping up here and there. That's, that's the way I'm seeing that going. And we also have to acknowledge that people are starting to move east, I guess, is now, now the thing. People are starting to move out of Silicon Valley to get to the more quieter areas and kind of bringing that with them. If you would have seen Austin 10, 15 years ago, it was, well, let's maybe say 20 years ago, it was not the thriving city that it is today. It is night and day. Uh, so, uh, Sean, you mentioned today you're from a town of 2,000 people. That's more than twice the population of the town that I'm from. <laughs> uh, so that's probably why we're on the same page. Um, but actually, Anthony, yeah. So you, you you're talking about people moving east out of out of Silicon Valley, and that's that's sort of true. Um, I think the fastest growing tech city in the country right now is Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, and that's because it's a very low cost of living and it's a very cheap place to start a business. Uh, that's why a lot of people, I know a lot of people who have moved directly from California, from Silicon Valley to the Midwest. Uh, and it's not just Des Moines. It's also places uh, like Omaha and Kansas City, yep. uh, places with low costs of living that are becoming very popular. And it's the people that are not able to break in into Silicon Valley. So what, to Art's point, to bring it back to UBI, this might actually help that accelerate. And, and this is a, a point that I, I have not heard somebody make before. And I think this is very good point And it's a very good selling point. Where I lost my time earlier, I, I found that train again. So basically, back to the housing thing and the inflation cost. The same thing that's bringing up UBI in general, which is automation, you know, robots doing all the work, AI, et cetera. That same thing is going to create less cost when it comes to housing, right? Because there's going to be less cost for human labor to build the houses or, you know, get the resources, et cetera. And to add to that, 
people are more on the move now. They don't they don't want huge houses like they did, like our parents might have and before. They want small, simple, maybe even modular. Uh, you know, you've got these container homes now. People living in vans is very popular. We know, we know Scott doing that. So I think that that whole thing would be very important to consider in the housing discussion. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, Dylan, you have something that you want to add? Yeah. So uh, I, th I think Art was bringing up, you know, he kind of, uh, Art and Sean were both touching on a very important point, uh, which is that when we're talking about uh, a UBI, we're talking about, again, not just poverty alleviation, but we're trying to talk about this in terms of long-term economic growth, right? And when we're talking about long-term economic growth, we're talking about mainly two things. We're talking about A, population growth, and we're talking about B, increases in productivity, right? Those are the two main contributing factors to long-term growth. Now, typically, uh, increases in productivity have come through investment, which would be higher, which would be stemming from higher end incomes. Uh, people who invest in new businesses who then go on to, to innovate which is kind of one of those nebulous economic metrics that we, we need to really get a better sense on, which then lead to increases in productivity, right? Uh, innovation is kind of the key to long-term economic growth, but it's not something that's, that we can you know, easily like, look at and say, hey, this is innovation, right? Because everyone thinks they're innovating when that's not necessarily the case. Uh, it's only really measurable in terms of productivity growth. A UBI, I think one of the, the extra benefits of that is that we start to access that, that increase, that innovation in, through channels that we haven't traditionally done. So, you know, so that would be like Sean was talking about you and like Art was talking about, you have people who are, it, it lowers uh, the opportunity costs of moving from place to place and being able to move from place to place. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, and being able to move from place to place is, you know, that will help you start a business. We're running a little bit short on time. Uh, Mateo does have something that he wants to add. Go ahead, Mateo. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to comment on automation. Uh, the rate of displacement uh, due to automation, I don't think that's even as quick as the rate of displacement due to job loss during the Great Recession. And we were able to adjust our current system to fulfill all those people. So I don't think the automation problem is necessarily a specific UBI fix. I think a lot of things can handle that and we'll have to somehow if that's where things go. It's also possible that we won't be totally automated out. It's up in the air. It's hard to say which way it's going to go. Automation over the long term is probably a good thing, but it does have negative short-term consequences that we need to, to handle. And we, we also can't know what people will necessarily do um, once jobs are eliminated or when they say jobs are eliminated, I don't think every single job in the face of the planet is going to be done by a robot now. But I think we also can't know like exactly how people are going to feel without work. I think people need to work or they need to be busy somehow. Otherwise, you know, humans aren't really great animals. We get up to a lot of what some people call no good. Yeah, that's that's the point like, I was trying to make. The whole having a society, having yeah, having a, a, a definition to uphold to something that you'll be judged by is actually, as much as I criticize it, generally is probably a good thing for most people. Talking about the homeless population in Seattle again, which I have experience working with, you know, I, I ran an employment program and employment was the very first thing that we tried to, you know, next to finding shelter, uh, employment was the first thing that we tried to get people into. And that's because 
uh, not because of the income benefits of employment, but because being integrated into society had a had a tremendous positive psychological benefit. You don't have to be Protestant to find honor in work. You know, it's it feels good to actually create and to do something even well, not always. I mean, some jobs are just miserable. Yeah, that, but, that's yeah, the no, thing, though. Exactly. Like, I don't think there's dignity in all work, but there is dignity in work. And I think that's a lot of, that's one of the... I think, depending on perspective, because I think janitors are more important than we'll ever give them credit for in our society. There's a lot of work that should be honored that isn't, but it's, those people can still hold that. I completely agree with that. But I'm saying, like, a person that just puts boxes together all day or something like something that can't can oh, yeah, be no. automated and it will be more efficient automated there's not necessarily dignity in work for that yeah just wrote tasks that's yeah. like almost unnatural that it, it would make someone depressed and, and, like you need to kind of uh specialize or something right and that, that that's the thing like so there's there's an idea that i think some people have where they're like no there's dignity in all work and i i don't think people actually feel that way if they're doing something that that yeah, yeah. I, true uh art do you have anything you want to want to add into this so at a certain point i do agree that there is a a quote-unquote dignity in work because that's how our society is framed and if you think about humans as hunter gatherers or in our original kind of natural state we're built to do things like we're not supposed to be sedentary we're supposed to be out you know actively engaged working for the tribe working for our individual cells working for whatever so there is a certain logic to that. However, our current society, if you think about like a cashier or some guy scrubbing a toilet, I mean, there's dignity in that, but really you're doing that to make a paycheck so you can keep a roof over your head and feed your family. It's not necessarily fulfilling or anything important. You know, it's kind of the same logic of people saying, well, Jesus is fake, but you should go to church because it teaches you morals. Well, yeah, I mean, going to church does teach you morals. You could find morals on your own, or you could go to church and have it kind of implanted into you. I mean, there's an argument either way, I guess. It's kind of the same thing with work. You know, you have these rich people who inherit a lot of money, and they might have empty kind of vacant lives, but they're not giving that money away to go scrub a toilet because it's a better problem to have than having to scrub a toilet. I don't think those rich people are doing nothing. They're very, very busy people most of the time. Even like people who have like hand, life handed them, like Kim Kardashian. She's all day doing stuff, but that's beside the point. Um, the whole honor and work comment that I had, I, I didn't mean relative to other things. We were talking about people with nothing to do when I made that comment. I mean, other than sitting around idly, almost people would much rather prefer, to, well, not people like me. I would much rather just free money, but I, I feel like most normal people would actually like to feel like they're contributing to the society. And that's what I, I wasn't saying, like, you know. I mean, obviously, scrubbing toilets sucks, and most people aren't doing it because they're like, that's it, man. I'm going to do that for society. But at the same time, relative to we were talking about automation or just people being jobless, that's still there's I think people have a lot more honor, see a lot more honor in that than just like sitting around. I could be wrong. Yeah, well, but you talk about honor. I mean, that's a very artificial concept. So that's kind of what we have to look forward to in the 21st century. And maybe not in five years, maybe not in 10 years, but certainly in 30 years or 50 years the point where there really is no manual labor left and there really is very little intellectual labor left. A lot of this stuff is simply going to be automated out from under us and we can argue about how long it's going to take, but we're really at a point in history that is unlike anything. I mean, really, you know, almost more significant than the invention of fire. I mean, we're at the point now where 
we're going to be able to not just augment human capability, but replace it. And we've never been at that capability before. It's uncharted water for us. And that's really the burden of the 21st century is to figure out how do we answer these existential questions that have sort of always been with us that we've never really had time to stop and think about because we just had to fucking work. We had to get the bills paid. We had to pay the mortgage. We had to do what we needed to do to keep a roof over our heads for our kids, for them to get onto the next level. And that was really just it. Even in the golden age of American prosperity, there was really no answer to the existential questions. We just happened to do better at the material side. And we're suddenly at that turning point where the lessons of the past don't even really apply anymore. And we don't want to kind of go you know, extreme about it, but we kind of have to recognize that this is a departure from the problems of the past in a good way and a bad way. And we just have to figure out a path forward. And that's why we're revisiting the idea of UBI now. Right. So what I was trying to say is, you know, back to the point of, you know, people need work, dignity, all that stuff. There's always going to be the majority of people that are only working just to get by, to get what they need. And they're, they're just always going to be that way. There's always going to be that group of people in society. But then you're going to have the other minority percentage that are just going to spend all that free time learning, you know, like, like Art said, it's going to be sort of a, the next age of self-education and exploration where we can really find the answers to everything. We're going to have that, all that free time to discover what we need to discover without interruption from work. Replacing the drudgery of work with a universal basic income in order for people to unlock their full potential is a great way to end the show. I'd like to thank Sean Dixon, our very special guest on the program, and we hope to have more of you on the program in the future. I'd also like to thank Jennifer Travis, who has been a great help on the back end with helping us edit and research topics. Without her assistance, we would not be able to continue this program. And as always, keep your head up through the political storm.